smartcast.com This is the morning brief from the Economic Times produced in collaboration with avas.com A wide-eyed millennial and an octogenarian chairman can they really be best buddies If you read Shantanu Naidu's I came upon a lighthouse his short memoir you surely would believe so a fun coming of age rendezvous of his association with Ratan Tata one of the most revered corporate citizen of this country some may call it a fanboy account of a private assistant but what personally struck me the most is the candor the honesty and simplicity but most important it shows mr tata in another light as a human being from the economic times this is orijit barman and you're listening to the morning brief to help me understand the real mr tata i have invited none other than shantanu or mr suitcase full of sparks as his insta handle describes him to open the bag and let us get a glimpse of the man Shantanu welcome to the show thank you Arjit i'm very excited and thank you for that lovely introduction so first off i guess everybody really want to know one thing who is the real ratan tata is he the endearing goofy witty parsi gentleman or is he the much revered senior most statesman of corporate india or a geek when it comes to cars and tech or simply a young old man with an infectious and vulnerable innocence who at times seems very very lonely i would describe him as all of those and i think that by uh using all those descriptions you've left me very little to describe but at the same time i will endeavor to answer your question from my perspective um but before i dive into all of these amazing tags that people um like to follow him by I think he is first and foremost uh, a human being like all of us and often we forget in celebrity culture or in role model culture which is very strong in India and once we start idolizing someone we forget that they are actually human beings in addition to that come all the exciting ingredients of him being a witty parsi gentleman a great intergenerational friend to many youngsters and at the same time um a startup investor someone who is passionate about philanthropy and carries the legacy of having run the tata group on his shoulders so he ticks all of these boxes different demographics sort of want to attach themselves to different sides of him but the side that i have tried to capture or the side that i have been lucky enough to be exposed to is the side that i find the most adorable because it is very close to who you and me are but was mr tata comfortable with a tell all book yes mr tata has been known to be shy and guarded but at the same time the reason he is so revered or he's he stands out so much um apart from his professional accolades is because he's authentic and in True. his authentic self when i described the concept of the book to him he realized that it's coming from an authentic place and an authentic relationship so it wasn't like i had to sit him down and pitch the book to him um if i can just sort of segue into how it started 
almost five years ago when I met him for the first time. And then I met him again. And then I met him again. My mother used to tell me to write down what happened in those meetings or describe in your red diary in my little red diary. Yeah. And that was because she thought that as time moves on, you, I might not remember all the details and the details is where the story would be the most precious. And she didn't intend it to sort of accumulate, accumulate and get converted into a book. But at the same time, she thought that for posterity's sake, for recording this little piece of history, um, I should be sort of capturing those notes. And because my friendship with Mr. Tata was already developing at that stage, I used to tell him everything. And I also told him this. And I told him that I go home and for my mom's sake and for posterity's sake, I always write down what happened. So from that point to the day that I told him that uh, Harper's has agreed to publish this book, it has been a journey of him seeing me work on capturing the authentic moments and being honest in its telling. Writing a private or keeping a private journal is very different from publishing a book. Uh-huh. And in that book, you've there are some anecdotes, some stories which are personal in nature. So wasn't there ever a degree of unease? Because you also showed him the manuscript. Yeah, surprisingly not. I, if I had to describe the approval process, I gave him the manuscript. He finished it in a week's time. And he handed it back to me and said that that is the most lighthearted and honest narration I've I've read through and I, I really like what you've done with it. And uh, he's not able to express his emotions just as easily. So subsequent to that, he wrote me a letter explaining how much he valued our relationship. Um, and the cause of that letter was reading the manuscript because it overwhelmed him somehow. And that was it. There was no change that he requested. Um, no structural change. No, please leave this out. No, why are you talking about this incident? And I think that comes from a place of trust that's developed over the five years and the, and a place of nostalgia and true camaraderie, uh, which I would like to think that is uh, working both ways. Just before going to Cornell, uh, you know, you, you both of you had dinner at Thai Pavilion, which is, as we all know, one of his favorite, one of his favorite restaurants. And he dropped you uh, to your yeah. hotel. Um, you hugged him when you got out of the car. What was going on in your head? I honestly would be so scared, so tongue-tied, so awkward. Uh, I don't know if I would be able to even shake his hands or, you know, just mumble something like, thank you, good night. <laughs> and, and, then, yeah. and then like, oh God, what did I do? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very much that kind of tension. But the moment he starts talking... And this doesn't apply just to me or just to my dinner on that date. Uh, having right. worked with him in a personal capacity, having seen him host so many meetings in and out of the office, abroad, here in India, formal, informal, whatever it is. One of the biggest things is once he starts speaking, it barely takes more than a sentence to understand how disarming his way of conversation is. And that applies to literally anyone who is sitting across him. And even even the dinner that you described, uh, once he started talking, all of my uh, fears and tongue tightness and all my uh, pent up emotions just flew out. But the other thing that struck me, and I'm considering that's something that brought both of you together. You know, the first thing that anyone notices while visiting Bombay House, uh, which is the Tata headquarters for the uninitiated, are the dogs. Yeah. 
I'm also not aware of any other corporate headquarter where there is a dog crash. Now, what is it about Mr. Tata and the dogs? Have you ever asked him? Is it their unflinching sense of loyalty, their love? You know, what makes them so special to him? Or is it all animals, actually? It is all animals, but the reason it's more dogs um, is because, as you rightly described, a purposeless love. So there's no reason. Mm-hmm. There's no literally. The, he he just loves the fact that the affection and love that comes from a dog does not have any incentive, does not have any uh, gain, and it's abandoned and ever flowing. If we now come to the present and talk a bit about you know your current stint. You know, they call you the principal gatekeeper to Mr. Tata's office, which, of course, you are. Uh, his young brain trust. Now, what does this job entail and how are you coping with it? Because, as you said, you weren't really prepared to, you know, you were, you were actually prepared to work as a soldier for the trust. But now you work for Mr. Tata. And that's a whole new ball game. Yes, it was the most unexpected thing um, because working for Mr. Tata does not have a clearly defined or uh, bound uh, a role with boundaries uh, where where you have deliverables that are listed. You go to office, you complete those, and you come home. So unlike a ten to five job with very clear um, things to do. The spectrum of responsibilities is so broad and ever growing. But if I had to spotlight the most important ones, it would be uh, one is assisting him with the trust's philanthropic efforts, and the other one is assisting him with uh, the investments that he makes to help and bolster young upcoming entrepreneurs and sort of assist the Indian entrepreneurial ecosystem, especially the youngsters. So while these two are at the top, it en- involves everything trickling down also, like attending most of the meetings where he wants me in there. Um, so I have to take copious notes, um, summarize it, take it back to him for discussion later. And it also trickles down even further to following him and shadowing him every day, getting the right papers, uh, making sure his schedule is on time, his calendar is on time. And uh, so it it... To the the reason I'm saying all this is because it the spectrum is right from the left where we talk about philanthropy and investment all the way down to literally just shadowing him around and being his assistant. But you also have to keep up to date with what's going on in the vast conglomerate that makes everything under the sun from coffee to cars. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that is somewhere uh, where it I think it happens organically when you work for him. Because he is also himself so updated that I, I automatically say updated because one would think that a young millennial working in his office is bringing him up to speed to topics, uh, more exciting topics like the ones you described. But it it so happens that half the times he brings them to me. So he's that updated. He is a very much, very much a millennial in that context. But what about you staying updated with things like steel, chemicals? Is there input coming from him as well? Because he's lived car steel for a long time. I'm just curious, do they interest you as well? They do interest me, especially because he talks about uh, his time when he had run those specific industries and conglomerates and the highlights of those. So 
um either after or before he does give me those incidents it piques my interest about that particular industry and then it starts like a whole research run uh for my personal benefit that i start and read into and dig into and oftentimes he also gives me directions as to oh there was this particular article in this particular date and time and this had happened oh, in remember? the tata group yeah by minute by day he will tell you like two days before i went to vacation this article had come out oh, wow. i read it while having breakfast with my assistant can you dig that up so he can pinpoint to a- another level which is like my own uh uh research library if you if i have to say because whenever i take an interest in like steel or anything else um any space in which the tata group has worked or when he was heading uh he will give me an anecdote but he will also give me a timeline and guidelines as to what i can read into and then i take that as a starting point and dig more into that particular industry and read up on it interesting but at the same time um we are sort of moving away from being engrossed in all of those because essentially he is not involved with the group anymore right since 2012 when called upon he advises but that's it uh but his interest and he his passions now lie with philanthropy and with entrepreneurship especially the, the two three spaces that he loves i have to stay on top of like the electric vehicle space or e-commerce or rural housing and the most important primary healthcare so i have identified these five spots after working with him because uh, automatically when these pitches or these startup decks come or someone talks to him about this his interest speaks to another level and the reason he likes these particular categories the most is because he not only has some connection or interest or knowledge about those but he knows that for the national benefit these would be primary how does rnt look at millennials i mean with all an amazement or there is a bit of you know what's what's wrong with this generation i have literally never heard him say the latter literally <laughs> never <laughs> not even in passing not even as a snide remark or a passing comment never yeah. for the first is definitely very strong and there is a very strong reason for it he likes to think that when he surrounds himself with millennials and young people he reverses the clock and becomes one himself in mind in passion in ambition he likes to share in the excitement and the vision that these young millennials share about creating something from nothing or creating a story that would contribute to national interests or would help someone as far as technology is concerned he is definitely up to date uh, with his apps and his phones and his hardware and websites so all that yes he is definitely up to date um and he is always open to le- learning and listening to what people have to say especially when millennials come in and he often surprises millennials because when millennials come to give him pitches or have a meeting with him they come with a perspective that they will have to bring him into the millennial context but when they start having the conversation a couple of questions in when he asks them they suddenly realize oh we just we really we really we were really very wrong because clearly he already has knowledge about all of that but you were a young founder once yeah. uh, you had your own project and that, that actually got you to meet him in the first place now for the last one year or so you decide the fate of so many startups as part of the brainstorming team uh how do you both of you actually see entrepreneurship uh evolve in the country so 
So number one thing he looks at when someone is pitching a deck is how passionate the, do the founders look and how committed to the startup they are or to the concept they are. And that is not something you can quantify. It's a very intuitive thing. And that is a tag that has been thrown around very frequently in the startup ecosystem that Mr. Tata is an intuitive investor because he, when he has a conversation, he can immediately tell who is going to stick to that concept and see it through and who is in it for the short run or just to raise funds. So that's step number one. Step number two is how much knowledge or how exciting is it for Mr. Tata himself? And that is on an industry level. For example, I mentioned in the book also that once upon a time, a shipping industry startup had come. That was my first pitch. So it can be the best shipping industry startup, but if it does not, if he does not feel like that is an area where he can contribute as a mentor or as an investor or as a, as a part of their team, if he doesn't think he can be involved and contribute, he will sort of not go in that direction. So that's number two. Number three or four that excites him the most is how does it help people? Now, entrepreneurs usually make the mistake that how does it help people essentially converts into uh, philanthropy or social entrepreneurship, but that's just not true. Even if it's changing communities or changing the way we do things in daily life, um, uh, to the point where we use these words like work, like let's let's swiggy it or let's Uber it. So these are words that have changed how we do things forever. So how does it impact communities on that scale is something he's very interested in. Uh, so these are like the large enveloping factors and um, the five categories that I mentioned, four or five categories, which are EV, healthcare, um, those are definitely important. No matter what they what the startup is, he will definitely take a look at them. And uh, he will also look for what funding has been done so far. So what happens is when people come to Mr. Tata, they think that Mr. Tata's funding is going to solve all of their problems, funding or otherwise. But when Mr. Tata or me even, we look at funding, um, if they haven't reached out for funding anywhere else or if all doors have been closed on them, then it can usually be a red flag because then we have to look into why they haven't been able to raise funds from anywhere else is it because their lack of trying? Is it because the concept has some flaws? So all of this also has to be checked. And then the finally, when we get to the financials, uh, we definitely look at the cash burn. What is it that's taking away most of your money? If that burn is spread out across the balance sheet, it's okay. It's it's fine. It's, it's how a business is expected to be. But if, for example, marketing is taking up 80% of your funding requirements, and if you're asking for 1 million, and if 80% is going to go into marketing, that's a big red flag. Why would you need marketing? Um, why would you need money in one place so much? And uh, the one thing I've learned is that bootstrapped startups, which basically means startups which have not taken funding from anywhere, but have been successful based on their own creativity by sidestepping all the challenges by using their own creativity, is something that is attractive both to me and him because that shows a level of perseverance even when lack of funds exists or not having to sort of dip into somebody else's pocket the moment you get that opportunity. Got it. But do you guys disagree? Oh, yes. Or is it always rule number one? No, no. Is always right. No, no. He encourages debate. He encourages it if it is with the right intention. Uh, so there's a very specific way you uh, have a debate with him on this topic where he gives points and I give points, but you don't really arrive at the decision right there and then in the room. You go back and you research more and you collect more data and more knowledge about it. Um, you collect more data about the competition. You collect more data about the industry, what's happen going to happen in the five years. 
and you use that data to back it up. And there are times when um, I am wrong, and there are times when he agrees that a perspective that he might have missed exists, and that's why we should go ahead and invest in a in a startup, or we shouldn't. But do you discuss? I mean, life beyond entrepreneurship, politics, the world affairs, what's you know the world we live in. I mean, these are strange times. Oh and, yeah. Uh, what makes him anguished? What makes him angry? Or what makes him happy? Um, I think that has sort of been highlighted in the past seven eight months because of the lockdown. We have been working from home, and that must be the most one on one work time as well as personal time that we have spent. Largely because when we are in office, his uh, calendar is so chock full with meetings where people are coming and going and coming and going, and then in between those meetings, we have time to discuss. But uh, in the lockdown, all meetings have been virtual. which has given us time to sort of really get into a lot of stuff uh, in depth but the one thing that i have seen him in anguish of of late uh, or the last time i saw him in anguish the most was when this covid uh, thing struck and um how the different communities were getting affected so be it the um, job situation be it the access to health situation or he was he was very restless to sort of immediately jump into it and get the trust active and get the equipment and help the front line and do everything possible but right up to the moment where we were chalking up a plan and diving into it i could see his anguish so his anguish i think i would describe as having seen a problem but um, there not being a solution previously or that him having not done anything about it yet which is subsequently followed by him doing something about it always Uh, which we saw in the covid where he with the tata trust um, invested their own 500 crores uh, not in any fund but in in direct implementation work where tata trust themselves acquired equipment organized the distribution upgraded hospitals across the country so all of that sort of helped um subside that anguish but to answer your question the anguish usually comes from problems of national level which he can't wait to dive in and solve and politics is boring politics he's a uh, pretty much a statesman there um he believes in working with uh, um all the governments uh, to sort of execute what's best for the communities uh, which is what the trust stand is so I, i i don't really have much more to say on that front now we are really stretched for time so quick questions that i have is uh one is what have you learned from him working with him so closely and how has that change your perspective of the world so what i have learned from him i think the most important lesson i have learned from him is to put yourself in anyone else's shoes literally anyone and that doesn't just give you an empathetic edge it gives you an edge in any situation be it business or personal it helps you completely imagine how the other person sitting across you is thinking what he wants and how you can help him or how he or explain why he's acting in a certain way which you might not like but might be justified the other learning sort of come as a uh following the example of what he does be it how he treats his colleagues his employees people who absolutely have no influence on his life or won't be able to do anything for him ever how he treats those individuals um all of that it has made a massive impact on how i began to see and treat people also the last thing uh, shantanu what do your friends relatives peers make of this intergenerational bond of friendship they are perplexed they are confused they are like wow i mean 
what, what is it that you face the most family is in forever awe of it yes um no matter how much I you guys are tata lifers i mean we are, it's that's fifth true. generation right that's so true. yeah that's true we didn't really have any significant role to play or any mention in history we've always been regular employees all our generations right. but we have right. revered them and that sort of reverence hasn't really gone away when it comes to my immediate family even though i have discovered this very um friendly and um, brotherly camaraderie it it they don't understand it completely i think because it's just beyond them and that generation in particular because once you have seen someone in such a great steel wall and uh, legacy light for your entire life and generations before that it it takes time and there's no guarantee that even after some time they will begin to understand my friends however adore this relationship um, they love to hear stories they love to find out his small quirks and jokes and witty and they absolutely are appreciative of uh, this intergenerational friendship and of course my immediate friends in motopause team the startup which i created i have uh, had the opportunity and the privilege of having them meet mr data so that he knows who is working on the ground to help mm-hmm. the animals bus full of them yeah bus full of them and uh, i have seen their eyes light up and they they will never forget that so my friends understand it um so everyone else it's very new and fresh uh it, it, they they and that that's why this import, it's important to bring forth this relationship or uh, the side of him because people just don't have um the thought even that mr tata is somebody's friend and he's somebody's brother and he's somebody's um comrade and he's somebody's colleague and he's a human being and he wakes up just like the rest of us and he has coffee just like the rest of us and he thinks about stuff just like the rest and has bad head like all of us <laughs> exactly and i think that's the level of privilege that he deserves a privilege that celebrities in general often don't get so you would say he's what a brother an elder brother a guru a friend mentor what is he to you it's matched up like i said as the circumstance and opportunity has presented he has taken up that role to give you a recent example in the lockdown um i live in a matchbox apartment um i don't really have uh any close friends or relatives here and um i wanted to go to the uh, to my family just before the lockdown but it, everything shut down and the initial stages it was very harsh even getting resources was not that easy in that phase he really stepped up and ensured i had food i had uh, vitamins and i was well taken care of so he steps up there if there is anything personal going on in my life which uh, which is emotionally hurting me and i confess it to him he'll take the role of a friend so it keeps switching and even when he describes um me um he he will never use one term he will always use two or three because even he can't put a finger on it he will always use brother he will always use paternal terms he will always use friend and i think that's really special not to be able to put it in one single bucket absolutely and it's been really great chatting with you i think we would love to go on and on but we've completely run out of time but you have to share with us one quirk of mr tata that you haven't really mentioned in the book one quirk that putting me a bit on the spot there well he does love his tobler on chocolates after dinner ah uh, that's that's one of his favorite things so and that comes even after dessert 
Um, wow. The, the chocolate that he does like, like to have keeps changing every three months. For example, he, he used to love Toblerone after dinner so much that I got him Toblerone. And at that time, his love for Toblerone had expired. Mm-hmm. And so, so the Toblerone just stayed shelved and he had moved on to another chocolate. So What's it that, now? Uh, I think it's truffle. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps goes with the season as well. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I just I learned that I have to keep up with his chocolates. But he, he loves it. It's a delight to see him chew on three or four blocks um, after dinner. It's one of my most uh, treasured memories. We'll sign off on that sweet note then. Thanks a lot, Shantanu, once again. Uh, it was a delight talking to you. And, you know, thanks for sharing all these anecdotes and lovely stories. All the best. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Most Indian icons from politics to sports or business lack a sense of humor, taking themselves a little too seriously. Possibly, they don't want to show their softer side in public. Biographers too played safe, mostly daunted by their stature. Perhaps this memoir will open new possibilities. It's great to see this brutally honest account, though personally, I would have preferred a bit more of grey as well. It's only human after all. I feel millennial India or her young entrepreneurs are disrupting the way we deal with our icons. Let them be the lighthouse, but let them be humans too. I'm Arjit Barman. and you've been listening to the morning brief this episode was edited by indulekha aravin and coordinated by anjali venugopalan i hope you enjoyed listening to this episode we look forward to your feedback write to us at the morning brief at timesgroup.com and if you like this episode please share on your social media handles we'll really appreciate it the morning brief drops every tuesday thursdays and friday thank you for listening and have a nice day goodbye and good luck avas.com